Rescue efforts continue in Morocco as people in the country rally to help those injured by Friday's devastating earthquake. It's very great for all Moroccans that cooperate for, to, to give their blood. It's uh, very important. For Sunday, September 10th, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Nate Rott. The National Football League is back, and the NFL is embracing sports betting like never before. This was a league that was staunchly against gambling, and then literally when money got thrown in their face, they completely uh, hit a 180 and was like, give us all the money. And we explore the Chicago roots of the TV show Soul Train. It was in this small space, uh, like 10 by 10, like no air conditioning, but these kids were so talented that it took off. Now, the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Aftershocks shook buildings in Morocco today after that powerful earthquake Friday night left more than 2,100 people dead and left thousands of others injured or missing. NPR's Lauren Freyer reports from Marrakesh. That's about 45 miles from the epicenter. Niza Arab grabbed her two children and ran out of the house when an aftershock hit. Even though her home survived Friday's quake, a second day of aftershocks have her too frightened to re-enter. Instead, she's camping on a curb with her mother-in-law and two kids. Wow. Roads are ensnarled with traffic as aid convoys try to ferry supplies to the hardest-hit villages in the high Atlas Mountains. The Moroccan king has declared three days of national mourning. Mosques are holding group prayers and blood drives. Some international aid has been held up, awaiting formal invitations from the Moroccan government. Lauren Freyer, NPR News, Marrakesh. President Biden insists he's not trying to hurt China. His comments come at the tail end of a trip to Asia that's focused on trying to create alternatives to China's influence in the region. NPR's Asma Khalid has more. Biden is here in Hanoi to deepen cooperation between the U.S. and Vietnam. The two countries formally elevated their relationship to the highest status Vietnam gives any country. This is largely viewed as a move that will anger Vietnam's neighbor, China, and comes on the heels of a visit to India, where the subtext was also China. But Biden says his actions are not about isolating China. I'm not, we're not looking to hurt China. Uh, sincerely, we're all better off if China does well. China does well by the international rules. Biden has not spoken with China's leader, Xi Jinping, in 10 months. Asma Khalid, NPR News. A relief organization providing humanitarian aid in Ukraine says at least one of its workers was killed after their vehicle was struck early today by Russian artillery. Two other members of the group, Road to Relief, were seriously injured in the attack. NPR's Brian Mann has more. The group Road to Relief said four members of its team were in a van going to Bakhmut in eastern Ukraine to help evacuate civilians caught near the front line. In a statement posted on Instagram, the group said a Russian artillery round struck the van, flipping it and setting it on fire. A Canadian team member was reportedly killed and two others from Germany seriously injured by shrapnel. The group said 32-year-old Emma Iqbal from Spain, founder of the aid organization, was missing. Spain's foreign minister told Spanish media Iqbal is also believed to have died in the attack. This strike comes as Russia also launched more missile and drone strikes against Ukrainian cities. Brian Mann, NPR News, Lviv. Novak Djokovic and Daniel Medvedev are battling it out for the championship at the U.S. men's tennis final in New York at this hour. You're listening to NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. Boston voters go to the polls Tuesday to whittle down the number of candidates running for city council. WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports Boston preliminaries have historically low turnouts. I went back four years, which was the last time there was a preliminary election for city council without a mayoral election at the same time. Uh, And turnout in Boston was just over 11 percent. So that means... There's not a ton of interest, and it also means that just a few votes really can swing things. Tuesday's winners will be on the November ballot. Boston City Council President Ed Flynn says it's very unlikely that he will run for mayor. Appearing on WCVB's On the Record, Flynn says he has other plans for the future. It's been a tremendous honor to be city council president. I'll go back to being a district city councilor, and then down the road, maybe if I have the opportunity to work on veterans issues and military family issues somewhere in the federal government or the state government. Flynn is running unopposed in Tuesday's preliminary. The John F. Kennedy Presidential Library is joining a dozen other presidential libraries to warn about the weakening of democracy in the U.S. The 13 libraries released a statement calling for a recommitment to American principles. This is the first time presidential libraries have joined to make a public declaration. Eleven people are recovering from injuries after a walkway collapse near Brunswick, Maine. The wooden structure at Doubling Point Lighthouse in Arousek gave way yesterday. Some victims fell 10 feet. The state's scenic lighthouses were open to the public. The traditional 9-11 remembrances will be held tomorrow on the 22nd anniversary of the terrorist attacks. Governor Healy will lead the first ceremony outside the State House when the names of the Massachusetts victims will be read. At Gillette now, at last check, it's Eagles 16, Patriots 0 in the first quarter. Former quarterback Tom Brady is being honored in a halftime ceremony. 70 degrees in Boston at 5.06. Showers and thunderstorms tonight, low in the upper 60s. A chance of showers tomorrow, upper 70s, mostly cloudy on Tuesday, mid-70s and a chance of showers Wednesday, mid-70s. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Nate Rott. Football is back. The National Football League season officially kicked off on Thursday, meaning for fans like me, Sundays from now until February are going to be filled with America's most popular sport. But even if you're just a casual viewer of football or really any network television program, you've probably noticed an explosion of advertising for a related business. Sports bet. You want to make every game interesting? Step one. Open the BetMGM Sportsbook. $200 instantly. Just for betting five bucks. <laughs> DraftKings, listen to me. The more you play on my app, the more you earn with Caesar Rewards. Check it out. I'm going full Caesar. The ads are pretty hard to miss and littered with celebrities. After decades of distancing itself from sports betting, the NFL is now going all in and embracing the multi-billion dollar gaming industry. Heck, even the Super Bowl is going to be played in Las Vegas at the end of this season. And for the NFL, it really does mark a huge change, a change that's come in the wake of a 2018 decision by the nation's highest court. 
By a 6-3 vote, the U.S. Supreme Court threw open the door today to sports betting. It ruled Justices said a 1992 federal law that banned all but a handful of states from having sports betting violated states' rights. Now the league has officially partnered with DraftKings, FanDuel, and Caesars Entertainment, all major betting sites. As long as their state allows it, that means football fans can now bet on everything from how many yards a quarterback throws for in a given game to who catches the first touchdown. Again, as long as it's legal in your state. This was a league that was staunchly against gambling, and then literally when money got thrown in their face, they completely uh, hit a 180 and was like, give us all the money. Karan Phillips writes for the sports site Deadspin. He says the ramifications of gambling sets up a serious dilemma for the league. Well, the NFL has suspended an Arizona Cardinal player through at least next season. Breaking news out of the NFL. The NFL has suspended five players for violating the league's gambling policy. The league has put themselves in a position of where they have to be, uh, you know, the old saying, judge you're an executioner with this because they don't have a choice. Now, the NFL has proven that it is Teflon and too big to fail. But if there is one thing that was ever going to bring the NFL down a peg or it would lose some of its luster, it would be a gambling rig, a sports betting rig with players or coaches or front office members. In total, 10 NFL players have been suspended for gambling violations since April. Legalized sports betting is now legal in 34 U.S. states and the District of Columbia. And the NFL didn't waste a second teaming up with some of the biggest names in the industry. Will the NFL's financial and cultural gamble backfire? Anytime a illicit activity such as sports betting is brought aboard, brought into the regulated environment, society struggles with it in the first early years. They try to figure, well, what can I do? What can I not do? What's against the rules? You know, what, what's allowed? ESPN's David Purdom was covering the gambling industry long before the 2018 Supreme Court ruling. And full disclosure, sports betting companies do sponsor and advertise on ESPN. But since that ruling, the sports betting industry looks very different. And in some ways, so does the NFL. We called them up to talk about it. How did that ruling change to the relationship between sports and betting? Changed it a lot. Um, it has been really a overwhelming change and quickly. In the, before the ruling, you know, they were fighting to keep sports betting uh, basically restricted to Nevada, at least the legal version of it. They fought it all the way to the Supreme Court. They lost soon as that decision comes down, boy, they've done the 180 pivots on their stance on sports betting, embracing in a lot of ways, partnering with sports books. You're now seeing odds and lines and point spreads infused into media coverage where they used to be kind of uh, pushed back towards the back and kind of kept in the shadows. But now I always think sports betting right now is more in our face than it ever has been in the history of the U.S. So explain for me, why was the league pushing back? Why was it fighting against, you know, a broadening of sports betting? Well, the league's stance was that a broadening of sports betting, legalized sports betting, would threaten the integrity of the games. They thought that it might lead to more uh, attempts at fixing, compromising games for gambling purposes. There's also a theory out there that that was kind of a facade, and they were just more trying to figure out the best way to position themselves uh, before this inevitably happened. So uh, the leagues were fighting it. At the same time, they were trying to figure out, okay, when this happens, how can we be in the best position to capitalize and, and monitor everything, the betting on the games? 
Okay, so 2018 Supreme Court says, hey, yes, states, you can now allow sports betting. Can you walk us through the kind of about face that the NFL has had on sports betting since then? It's amazing. It's a complete 180. They were talked about how the, the legalization of sports betting just in New Jersey would irreparably harm the integrity of the league. And now they've embraced it. They have multiple sportsbook partners, uh, MGM, Caesars, uh, FanDuel, DraftKings. There's also uh, sportsbooks inside NFL stadiums now, and they will be allowed to be open for the first time on game days this year. Washington has one. Um, I believe the Bears are looking at putting one. There's one at Wrigley Field when you kind of gravitate over in, into Major League Baseball. There's a sportsbook at the Arizona Cardinals Stadium. Uh, it is pretty crazy how quickly that they have switched their position on this and embraced it. And David, maybe you can clarify for me, you know, these partnerships that the NFL has made with some of these betting companies, do they get paid for having the outlets in these stadiums and for giving them stats? I mean, how does that work? Yeah, there's there's different uh, systems of how it's put together and uh, very transparency of, of the contracts has, has not been there. We haven't seen exactly. My understanding is someone is just a vendor, just like a rental thing. Uh, they rent the property and then they pay, pay a rent to them. So uh, that's how at least some of them work. Um, other parts of the deals... Uh, where they're going to get some sort of cut uh, from the amount wagered on the games, right? You know, maybe it's a very small percentage. A lot of times that comes down to the data. Uh, maybe suddenly the contract says, okay, we'll allow you to have our license here in Virginia. And some sports leagues have been granted, sports franchise have been granted betting license. And then they kind of partner out with a with a FanDuel or a DraftKings. And sometimes in those arrangements, my understanding is that it could be okay, you partner, you've got to buy our data and use that to fuel your sports books. And that's how another way they monetize it. So what is the motivation for the league here? I mean, do they gain anything besides money? And is there something they're losing here too? Well, money is the is the number one thing. Yeah. Everything will always lead back to money. How can we make the most money? And they do it through fan engagement. Um, there's been studies in the past where if a point spread is in play in a blowout game, the ratings are a little bit better. Fans will stick around longer when the point spread is in play. Uh, so ratings are, are the big, big one that they're trying to go through and the marketing from it. Yeah, if you got money on the line, you're going to pay more attention to a game, right? Correct. All right. So I want to step back. ESPN and other outlets have reported about the confusion amongst NFL players and coaches about the league's gambling rules as they apply to players. Right. I think I'm a big Denver Broncos fan and our new head coach, Sean Payton, was quoted earlier this offseason saying that even he was more confused about reading the league's sports betting guidelines when they were came out. What's making this so difficult? The, war, the confusion stems from where the bets can be placed. So the athletes, the players in the NFL, they have an exemption where they are allowed to bet with legal operators on anything except for the NFL. Okay, so any other like basketball, tennis, you know, you yeah, name it. NBA, baseball, tennis, whatever, long as it's not related to the NFL. There the confusion, a lot of these players got tied up. You're not allowed to place the bets while you're at works. And that includes if you're on a trip for a road game in the hotel, wherever. If you're on that trip with them, you're considered at work and you're not allowed to bet. And a lot of normal corporations probably have similar things. They don't want you sitting around betting, gambling while you're at work. And that's where a lot of the guys got tripped up. For. And, I, and I can understand that. I do not understand there to be any confusion on anyone that thinks that it's okay for them to be betting on the NFL when they're playing in right. the NFL. And there has been a handful of those guys who uh, have done that and they, they have lost a whole year of their career. So 34 U.S. states, D.C., now allow sports betting. 
Should we expect to see more states legalize this in the coming years? Yeah, we're going to get Kentucky here at the start of football season. That will add it on. Um, the big states are still out there, though, right? California and Texas both have taken serious looks at it. It's very complicated in those states. In the casino industry, there's tribal gaming interests that are very powerful in California. Uh, so it's going to take a while. But if you think how big the market has grown, and there's already been $250 billion, billion with a B, dollars wagered with U.S. sports books since that Supreme Court decision. So we've already had that, and we don't even have California and Texas on board. This market is going to only continue to grow. So we're talking about the NFL's embrace of sports betting. Have other professional sports league also embraced sports betting since this decision in 2018? I can't think of one that hasn't. Um, <laughs> NBA sports books inside the, the arenas, Major League Baseball. We mentioned the Wrigley Field has a sports book now. Uh, they all have partnerships and advertising dealers with various sports betting operators, and they're all looking for ways to monetize this and a lot of times that comes down to their data the statistics and if they can show the sports books that hey you really need our accurate and prompt statistics because remember a lot of the betting now doesn't just happen before the game it's happening throughout the game what they call in betting in order to fuel that live betting you got to have those statistics you got to have them quickly and so that's why one of the ways that all the sports leagues are trying to monetize this that was ESPN staff writer David Purdom. We reached out to the NFL for comment and have not yet heard back. The American Gaming Association says that 73.5 million American adults, that's 28% of all American adults, plan to bet on the NFL this season. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. If you're new to Boston, thanks for choosing 90.9 WBUR. And thanks even if you're not new. I'm Susan Levy. We are Boston's NPR news station. You'll find updates at the start of every hour, along with more context and nuance than alerts on your phone. Listen every day on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Arts Thursdays at Harvard's Art Lab with the film Bravo Burkina, a magical migration love story by Wale Oyejide, September 14th at 7, Art Lab at Harvard. Coming up at 6, the New Yorker Radio Hour, at 7, Freakonomics Radio, and at 8, Latino USA. 70 degrees in Boston at 518, showers and thunderstorms tonight, a chance of showers tomorrow, mostly cloudy on Tuesday, and a chance of showers on Wednesday. WBUR supporters include Solar Gardens. Residents can support clean energy without installing solar panels. Learn more at solargardensma.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. President Biden visited Vietnam today, the second and final stop on his tour of Asia. He's focusing on creating strong relations between the U.S. and Vietnam and alternatives to China's influence in the area. Biden hasn't met with China's leader, Xi Jinping, in 10 months. Federal Railroad Administration inspectors say they found a substantial number of defects on Union Pacific locomotives and rail cars that were used at the world's largest rail yard in western Nebraska. Rail lines are getting a closer look after the fiery Norfolk Southern derailment in February.
And the impeachment trial of suspended Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton resumes this week. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at Carnegie.org and from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Nate Rott. The show Soul Train was broadcast nationally on TV from 1971 through 2006. And for years, it helped shape musical tastes all across the country. But it began as a local TV show in Chicago. The Curious City podcast from member station WBEZ set out to explore the show's origins. Here's reporter Ariane Nettles. Soul Train, the place of love, peace, and of course, soul, was one of the longest-running TV shows in history. It was broadcast nationally for decades, from the 70s through the early 2000s, and everyone knows the ever-so-cool Don Cornelius, the show's creator and longtime host. Hey, Don, welcome aboard. I can guarantee you'll enjoy the ride, especially if you like your soul ice cold, because none other than the Iceman himself is going to be looking you right dead in your eyes. But before that, it started here in Chicago. There were about 10 of us that were in high school together, and we all went together. You cut school, didn't you? We cut school in the afternoon to get downtown. That's Curious City listener Larry Arroyo and his mom, Debbie. Yeah, and I got grounded when I got home. (laughs) Showed up on TV, what do you expect? (laughs) Larry wrote to us to learn more about that earliest period of Soul Train that a lot of people don't know about when it began here in Chicago. And at that time, his mom and her friends weren't the only ones cutting school. I mean, these kids were like dying to be uh, on television, show their dancing skills, and be there on Soul Train with Don Cornelius. I remember the big apple hats and them dancing in the bell-bottom pants. You also had to go home, you had to change your clothes, you had to make sure your hair was looking right, you had to make sure your makeup was... So, yeah, it was a big deal. I'm Ariane Nettles, and we're going to tell the story of how our city gave birth to... The hippest trip in America. Going to Soul Train in the 1970s, a very big deal. Hair done, check. Outfit looking right, check. Crew assembled, check and check. If you go down to the Chicago Board of Trade building today, you'll see people with their work bags and suits scurrying to and from their nine to fives. But back on August 17th, 1970, this place looked very different. Young people were lined up around the block to be part of the first airing of this new dance show. 
Hi there and welcome aboard. You're right on time for a beautiful trip on the Soul Train. And if the sight and sound of Soul's your pleasure and what's your treasure, you can bet your bottom we got them, baby. And after message from the Johnson Products Company, three of the most beautiful and talented sisters you've ever seen in your life are going to be looking you dead in your eyes where your beauty lies. That's the sound of the nationally syndicated show. We couldn't get a hold of any tape from the inaugural year. Folks who worked on the show say tape was really expensive back then, and the show was likely taped over. Anyway, they packed the tiny studio, along with mostly black creatives who were invited to showcase their talents on TV. Artist Michael Griffin was one of those creatives. I do remember it broadcasting out of there because I think right next to there was another place that we used to all go and hang out in called the Bull and the Bear, <laughs> which was a, a after work club in one of the buildings next to the Board of Trade, but down in the basement. Michael was part of a group of designers and models named Les Menage. They were cool, popular, on the scene. So it's not really a surprise that he'd be tapped to come on the show in those early years, because after all, that's how it went. I was known as a good dancer and someone who dressed well, which is kind of how those friendships began and that happened for us. And our group was pretty much uh, well known uh, in the Chicago land area. That's how he got to know Clinton Gent, a dancer and choreographer. Gent grew up with Don Cornelius and Don tasked him with finding people for the show. Gent invited them on the Soul Train to model their clothing designs. I did watch the show when it first aired and it was interesting because there was nothing else on TV that showed black dancers playing all uh, black music. Most of us know the big story of Soul Train, how it moved to L.A., all the major stars that would come through. But before all of that, before all that Hollywood glam, Soul Train looked, felt, and sounded like the soul of Chicago. Alrighty, let's check out that Soul Train line now. The Soul Train gang to the music of earth, wind, and fire, and mighty, mighty. Erica Blount Danois is the author of a book about Soul Train titled Love, Peace, and Soul. She says the show allowed the city's young people, like Michael Griffin, to become the show's stars. And that was part of the magic. It was in this small space, uh, like 10 by 10, like no air conditioning, but these kids were so talented that it took off. And also just being able to sort of see, you know, yourself on TV, like you felt, <laughs> you know, the kids felt like they were local celebrities because they were. But let's step back for a second. Don Cornelius didn't just show up at a TV station one day. He started out as a Chicago cop. Legend has it, he was discovered by an executive at radio station WVON during a traffic stop. The exec was blown away by Don's voice and suggested he get into radio. From there, Don's career took off. Let's get into trouble, baby. Now, the idea of a dance show wasn't necessarily new. So, when Don Cornelius pitched his idea, people didn't take it seriously at first because there were other shows in Chicago. But Don was motivated. He wanted to show black youth in a way that the national media wasn't portraying them at the time. His idea was to reimagine what a dance show could be. Make it fresher, edgier, cooler, like him. 
and pairing the city's young people with that vision proved to be a winning formula. Another part was, you know, Don Cornelius's vision as it related to having this kitty show that was, I guess, a little bit more edgy than what was already happening. Um, there was, there were two other dance shows, Kitty A Go Go and Red Hot and Blue. But this dance show that he created on WCIU Channel 26 was a little bit edgier. These were teenagers a little bit older and they had dance moves that were, you know, they were, <laughs> they were good. On top of this, Chicago itself was already a music city, especially for Black musicians. Just think about some of the most popular music of the 50s and 60s, leading up to Soul Train in 1970, and where it came from. So you're talking about like Chess Records, you're talking about, um, you know, blues artists, Etta James, Muddy Waters, Dells, Chuck Berry, you know, all of these people in this sort of place that is not New York, but is a music town. You know, Earth, Wind & Fire, Curtis Mayfield, you know, in terms of business is also, um, you know, Sam Cooke creating his own label. But for a cool cat like Don to be able to raise his profile, to be able to get all of the influencers and young people needed to pull this off all at the same time, it took Don Cornelius's role as a black radio personality because that helped push him into celebrity. And as migration to Chicago from the South continued during this time, communities of black folks who loved their radio personalities continued to swell. Here's what you gotta understand. Chicago was the Mecca. That's Melody Span Cooper the chair and CEO of the company that owns WVON. The station was the first in Chicago to cater to black audiences. Sound of WVON. More music! WVON Cicero. I do believe we shall overcome WVON. Her father, Purvis Ban, was one of the city's most well-known names in radio, as well as the station's co-owner. So she grew up seeing Don Cornelius at work, and she saw the influence the station's Black radio personalities had. And they all had monikers. You had uh, E. Rodney Jones, the mad lad, right, who was the program director. Now, from the home of the good guys, the E. Rodney Jones Show. Welcome back, Jim. Hope you enjoyed your vacation, brother. You had uh, Bernadette C. Washington. She had the biggest women's club in Chicago, 3,000 women strong. But all of them had their own special identity, special brand, and what they brought, their own DNA, which made it so powerful. I'm uh, eight feet tall. I weigh 132 and a half pounds, very slender and not really good looking either, but I do play some boss jams. There's no two ways about that. Radio personality Richard Steele may be retired, but his connections in Chicago radio still run deep. He worked at WVON with Don Cornelius, and they became friends around the time Soul Train was starting off. He says Don was ambitious and took full advantage of how well-loved WVON personalities were in the communities. WVON was the killer radio station at that point. And Don was a news guy who uh, 
filled in as a disc jockey from time to time because VON had such high visibility. It gave the personalities visibility, even the news people. So he had he had sets at high school. He had record hops at high schools, and uh, he had a great deal of visibility. In addition to radio, Don Cornelius was already connected to WCIU, the TV station where Soul Train would air, because he had a news show there. He did a show called uh, The Blacks View of the News that he did uh, daily. And uh, that's how he really first connected with Channel 26. At the time, the station was small. They were experimenting with programming and were open to allowing new show ideas, like those that appealed to specific demographics of viewers. Don used $400 of his own money to produce the pilot. When he came up with this idea for Soul Train uh, locally, it became a success. I mean, the first people he had on were the impressions. She may not be the best-looking woman I ever did see. Staple singers, and, and these kids loved to dance. He had built up a following of these kids because of the high school hops he used to do. So this thing, this program after school with these kids dancing on television in Chicago, that was major. I mean, these kids were like dying to be on television, show their dancing skills, and and be there on Soul Train with Don Cornelius. And all the love that I have to the soul. soul Train wasn't the only show in the country, though. Every major metro area had a dance show with local teens clamoring to be on. But there was something about Soul Train and Don Cornelius that made this particular show stand out. Watching the show, he seemed so cool. Because he actually was. He was cool. <laughs> he, he was he was cool. If you knew him, you wouldn't say, oh, this is the erudite television personality who does. No, he's Don from the hood. I always admired him because he was cool. My thing was being cool. I had two people that I admired who were cool. Miles Davis was one because he was really cool. Yeah, he was. <laughs> and, and Don Cornelius was the other one. As a host, Don Cornelius's connection with the audience was effortless. And it was authentic. With him, since he was from the inner city and from the community, he connected directly. He didn't have to stretch to do that. He knew who everybody was, what they were about, as you do when you grow up in a community and you're, you're a person who's involved a lot. And it's that culture, that Chicago cool, that took Soul Train far past the walls of its 10 by 10 studio. In 1971, just a year after being a local show, Cornelius got a syndication deal and created a new version of the show in Los Angeles. There, it became a national phenomenon, but it still remained a big deal in Chicago. And even today, you can still see its influence on the city's culture. That was Ariane Nettles reporting for the Curious City podcast from WBEZ in Chicago. Each episode is based on questions from listeners. You can hear more of Love, Peace, and Soul Train at wbez.org slash Curious City. This is NPR News. It was a day of aftershocks, funerals, and frantic rescues today in Morocco. More than 2,100 people are confirmed dead since Friday's earthquake, and that death toll is expected to rise as aid teams approach some of the worst-hit areas high in the Atlas Mountains. 
The United Nations estimates some 300,000 people have been affected. NPR's Lauren Freyer reports from Marrakesh, about 40 miles from the earthquake's epicenter. The minaret of the 12th century Qutubiyya Mosque remains standing in Marrakesh's old city. And today it issued a special call to prayer for the missing, while aftershocks shook buildings all around it. Niza Arab's house survived the initial quake Friday, but an aftershock today sent her running. And now she's camping on a curb with her two children. It feels like every patch of grass in this city, even highway medians, are covered with sleeping bags. Piles of blankets and pillows, little children playing with a stray kitten. Families are trying to put up sheets and give themselves some kind of privacy in this outdoor encampment. They've spent two nights here. People have delivered water and food, but they don't know the state of their homes and they're scared to go back. There have been several aftershocks in the past few hours. Arab's mother lives in the mountains near the quake's epicenter. She just heard from her. She's safe. But her neighbors on either side are not, and funerals are already underway. She doesn't know when the road will be safe enough to travel to go see her mother. While international rescue teams begin to arrive at Morocco's airports, Moroccans themselves are already mobilizing. In Marrakesh today, a huge crowd formed at the gates of a blood bank, servicing some of the area's big government hospitals. What's happening here? So much commotion. Uh, I already closed the, the donation for today. You have so many people yes, already. that you closed the gate already? Already. It feels great for all Moroccans that cooperate for, to, to give their blood. It's uh, very important. Hassan Wahail is a 22-year-old volunteer in a reflective vest. And the blood he's collecting is destined for just across the street at an emergency room. Doctors are all gathered at the emergency room entrance here. Every 30 seconds a minute, another ambulance pulls up and stretchers roll in. A lot of these patients now have come from a long distance up in the mountains. They're bandaged, they're bleeding, some are unconscious. They've got splints on their legs. They're being wheeled in on stretchers that are caked with dust and, and dirt. Dirt from the road that brings them down from the mountains. We drove part of that road today in the other direction toward the epicenter. The asphalt was cracked, lined with military convoys and funeral processions. We heard about boulders blocking the road farther ahead and whole villages crumbled off a hillside. At one point, we stopped to ask for directions from an elderly man named Ahmed Ganou, who was pacing in a field. Beyond this point, he said, there's hardly anything left. Lauren Fryer, NPR News, Marrakesh. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. On 90.9 WBUR, I'm Susan Levy. So glad you're with us. On the New Yorker Radio Hour at 6, adapting the best-selling books The Wager and Killers of the Flower Moon for the big screen. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. 
we will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. And according to the U.S. Surgeon General, loneliness is a national epidemic. A project here in Massachusetts is trying to combat the problem by helping people make friends. The story tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Listen again tomorrow. 70 degrees at 539. Showers, thunderstorms tonight, a chance of showers tomorrow, and mostly cloudy on Tuesday. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the half-god of rainfall at ART. Women and goddesses rise up against Zeus in this modern-day myth. Two weeks only, now playing. amrep.org. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Aftershocks continue to rock Morocco as surge crews continue to comb through the rubble of the powerful earthquake last week that left more than 2,100 people dead, thousands injured or missing. The epicenter was some 45 miles from the historic city of Marrakesh. In Ukraine, a relief organization says one of its workers was killed after a Russian artillery attack on their vehicle. Two others were seriously injured. The group says their members were heading to eastern Ukraine to help evacuate civilians caught on the front line. And at the weekend box office, the Warner Brothers horror sequel, The Nun 2, debuted in the top spot with an estimated $32 million in ticket sales. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. From American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people, at wtgrantfdn.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Nate Rott. I'm going to hand things over now to my colleague, Rachel Martin, for another conversation in her series called Enlighten Me. If you've listened to a few of these segments, by now you've heard me talk about the reason that this whole project came about. I don't know what I believe. Don't get me wrong, I am a grown woman who has lived a lot of life at this point, and I have definitely learned some things. I have uncovered deep truths about the world and myself for that matter. But when it comes to questions of faith, I do not have it figured out. The religion that my parents brought me up with doesn't fit anymore, but I still long for a kind of spiritual community. According to the academic types who study social trends, there's a name for someone like me, a nun, not the Catholic kind, N-O-N-E, as in when it comes to a religious identity, I have none. According to a study by PRRI, the Public Religion Research Institute, almost 30% of Americans consider themselves to be unaffiliated from any religious institution. This was in 2022. Compare that to 1991, when only 6% of respondents said they were religiously unaffiliated. So there's clearly something going on. America is getting less churchy. But is it getting any less spiritual? I don't think so. I think it just means our faith communities and institutions aren't giving people what they need anymore, which is probably why Perry Bacon's recent column in the Washington Post caught my eye. Perry and I both grew up in really religious households. Both of our fathers preached at the pulpit on Sundays. 
And going to church was never an option. It was just what we did, what was expected of us. My father helped run the Bible studies um, at the church. So I, one of the ways I learned to drive was my father was like, well, I go to this Bible study three days a week. So if you want to drive, you can drive me to Bible study. And so that's <laughs> what I did. But like me, Perry has grown away from the church he grew up in. It doesn't reflect the totality of his values anymore. He started feeling distant from his faith when he left his home in Louisville, Kentucky, to start college at Yale. It was in New Haven, Connecticut, so there weren't a lot of uh, black charismatic churches to go to. <laughs> right. So, uh, you know, I, I probably went to church like one of every three Sundays. Some some years I went a lot, some I didn't. Yeah. And if you um, didn't, if you didn't go to church on a Sunday um, during that time, like, did you feel unmoored in any way, or did that time get eaten up real quick with like whatever college? No, pursuits? no, no. I was always very aware of something as not quite right on this Sunday or in some level of guilt, I would say about, okay, this is, I know where I'm supposed to be and I'm not there. And Mm. a little bit of, a little bit of like, I I think I had sort of internalized, okay, it's going to be easier to go to church when you're like, um, maybe if I'm back in Louisville or if I'm, or if I'm an adult or if I have kids, there's not as much social pressure. There's no social environment, which church is required here. And so let me sort of write off these four years in a certain way, and I'm sure I'll get back to it afterward. And that actually ended up happening, so that wasn't necessarily wrong. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So then if we just kind of move through time, um, as like a young, successful adult living in East Coast cities, mainly Washington, D.C., where was your faith at? Was your spiritual identity still evolving? What was happening? So evolving, so in my 20s, um, moved to D.C., and a few of my high school friends uh, were also in D.C. So they, um, they're they white, but their church was, while not being like the one I grew up with, um, it was multiracial. It didn't have hymnals. There was a, there was a lot of enthusiasm. They had like a band at the front. Praise there band. Were, you know, praise band. So, that, so I felt very comfortable in that environment, actually. And so I guess, so I pretty much the, you know, first year after college, I'm at a church that I like. There's less focus on did God talk to you and so on. So the parts right. of my childhood religion that I found to be really sort of hard, they, it was much more of a, it's one of these non-denominational, more like kind of optimistic Christianity, I almost think of it as. So that was a, it felt a little bit like home, you know, I was in a community. So I, in some ways I felt, okay, the college thing was sort of a weird four-year cycle, but right. I'm in a church, I'm in a small group, you know, during the week, this is kind of where I thought I would be. like a slow burn up to this question but like what happened Perry it sounds like you felt like you belonged you'd kind of found a place to be to express that side of yourself your your spiritual self and now you're like I'm a nun I'm a nothing what happened I think uh, you know while being black and having grown up in a black church and all kinds of experiences like the the Black Lives Matter movement and the sort of de- the ideas around that were often more kind of radical and you know and more and challenging to me you know i had been someone who's trying to like really work within the system you know kind of taking the obama-ish route through their career in a certain way of like being palatable enough to the uh powers that be Mm. not talking about racial issues in a very direct way and so in, in that way not only with the black lives matter but the ideas of that made sense to me and a lot of the ideas that came out of that were coming from scholars who were not religious. And some of the people I read were secular humanists, or they thought that the black church actually had some 
elements that were not very helpful. There was, you know, the church created a le level of acceptance of American society as it is instead of challenging it. And so I think that was one part of it. Um, so you saw, you saw a different way. A different to be way to be a black, a, a moral black person in America, in America and, yes. and concerned with social justice. Yes, and, exactly. And prioritizing exactly. those issues. Thank you. That's, yes. And so second thing was, so I was at the church. I was a, um, they had these, have, they have small groups at churches like this where you have, where people come to your house during the week and you, you're supposed to, supposed to help build a fellowship. So I was hosting one where, where like it, was, it was a men's group. So men would come to my house and they would, we would read, we would discuss what happened to the sermon and we would have, it was supposed to be kind of a community building exercise. Mm -hmm. And so this is like 2015, I guess. And so um, one of the people who was in my group, you know, had lunch with me and he said, you know, I wanted to be a small group leader myself. And the church said, I can't. They said, because I'm gay, I can be a member, but I can't lead a group unless I don't Right. If I'm in any kind of relationship, then I couldn't be a member of, I couldn't be a leader of a small group. And I honestly had not spent a lot of time thinking about the church's policies on gay rights because the church had, I was in a church, I was in a church at this point that was in Washington, D.C. proper, and it was very pro-immigration, pro-refugees. The pastor had talked about how Black Lives Matter is important. So it was pretty liberal, I would say, or pretty progressive on a lot of the issues that I cared about. So I hadn't really Noticed, you made an assumption, really, or you made yeah, an I assumption. Made an, and I think a lot of non-denominational churches, because I've spent a lot of time looking into this, don't necessarily, if you go on their website, you have, you'd have you have a hard time figuring out what their views mm. on gay marriage are. I actually, I've been exploring churches a little bit, both in D.C. and here in Louisville now, and I had to go ask one of the pastors personally, what are your views on this issue? Because I spent a lot of time on their website and couldn't find it. I remember the pastor in Louisville said to me, well, we're welcoming of everyone. We would not do a same-sex wedding. Is that good enough for you? Wow. So he seemed to know exactly what I was asking. Yeah. You know, and it sounds like I was not the first in person who asked. He said, actually, we would not put this on a website. So again, the goal uh -huh. is to obscure. It's not, they right. know there's an audience of it's people complicated under 50 for them. Right. who do not want to go to a church that is anti-gay, but they don't want to show that. So I was struggling at the church I was in to, because I'm in a church. To reconcile I, all this stuff. Right. Yeah. But we were thinking about moving to Louisville anyway. Or oh, that's anyway. convenient so, for you. you and so it was convenient like, Sorry. So it was like, so I didn't Peace. have to have, the, so I knew, so I, in some ways I was the, the church breakup that I was headed toward, I didn't have to have. And so we moved, then I'm in a new old city. So I had, I still had other questions, which is my church that I grew up in still exists, obviously. Mm. It's smaller. So when I got back to Louisville, it wasn't like these questions were unresolved. Right. So Even more um, profound, actually, because so, you have to yes, make a decision. So yes, in a certain way. Since my belief itself was sort of weak, I, you know, I, I wasn't any, you know, I wasn't sure about the, the, the Jesus Christ parts of the sermon. So mm. that was parts where I was struggling with, do I believe this? What do I think about this? Um, so it also, wasn't just the, the politics and, or whatever yeah. was changing your theology. I mean, you yourself were having kind of existential doubts about the core beliefs of Christianity. I was treating Christian as being like Jewish in some ways. It's like I was born into this. Right. I'm culturally sort of culturally Christian. Christian. Yeah. There's no reason to sort of drop it because it's fine. And maybe if I was born in a Muslim family, I'd be a Muslim. So it's like, it's fine. Yeah. So at this point, it's like, okay, where do I want to land? Pandemic hits. Um, we've the first year, 2020. I watched the church services on online on Easter. I'd never missed a church service on Easter, but yeah. 
that year definitely sort of fulfilled the separation from church was sort of complete. write explicitly that that having your daughter Charlotte is actually one of the reasons that you you have stepped away from organized religion because you don't want to have to explain to her oh yes we believe that you know these tenets of the bible but these other ones are sort of problematic and and for me it's the opposite actually i i grew up in a super religious household and my dad was also like a volunteer assistant pastor and as a young adult I fell away from that faith but having kids as a parent I'm like you know what it, it the religion of my parents doesn't fit me anymore but also I I sort of need help as a parent like I want other people to be involved in talking to my kid about right and wrong and yes. the nature of forgiveness and humility it's like I, I need a, another team. And for me, my point of view is like a, a church was an easy place to get that. Plus, like, here's some organized volunteer activities and, you know, coffee hour where you meet your neighbors. It's just like one stop shopping. And and so my kids were really the impetus for me to find a church. And and I haven't been able to. But for you, it seems like it was the reason you stepped away. Well, it's both. It's like, I want all that stuff too. So if they, if I could find a church and I'll look at this, maybe exists where the Sunday school, they have a Sunday school, but it's very low on the, here are the beliefs of Jesus and very high on the community part. That's kind of what I'm looking for. And I'm guessing if I like went to 30 churches in Louisville, I could probably find a Sunday school that's sort of low on the um, Jesus rose from the dead and high on the we should be compassionate, caring people. And that's kind of, I'm guessing, I would just like that to exist in a way where I could just find it quickly as opposed to, uh, I've, I, my piece ran, I've been emailed by 15 churches in Louisville who are saying, we are perfect sure. for you. And so, and so I, and I'm guessing probably one of them is, but I do think the community part would be helpful for Charlotte too. Yes. Right. Do you, though, in some way, to even loosely attend or loosely wear the identity, even of a cultural Christian, don't you sort of need, like, the resurrection part or it loses its its backbone probably. altogether? I have not thought through this part in great detail, but I think this probably... This is also vexing me, yeah. Yeah, it is the, the, yeah the resurrection part... So one version is what you said is like, can you be a Christian who is sort of culturally Christian? Um, I think another route is to maybe I could be the recruiter for the Unitarians in Louisville or something. You know, that's, you know, I, you know I'm not, I don't think that that's out of the well possibility either. Yeah. Right. Even though I'm black, I'm in a very white liberal environment. So uh, my neighborhood is pretty white and there's a farmer's market that my daughter and I go to every Saturday that, that is from like from like March to November. And so I love that I'm you caveat that like that's yeah. like this widest activity going to like no, 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 no. Well, the reason I say that is because, I mean, I'm sure I should care about buying fresh vegetables more, but I really <laughs> do not go there to shop at all. I go there because we see the same people almost uh -huh. every week. Right. And therefore we talk to them and I know their kids and they know Charlotte and we ends up having the same, a summer sort of kind of functional, um, it has that same, it has, ends up being that sort of function. As like Farmer's of, Market is your church? 
Uh, yeah, I'm getting close. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to repeat that sentence or say yes to it precisely, but it has ended up having some of the sort of community functions that I'm looking for. And I now think of it that way. It's like we, I really do try to go every week and we're going to spend an yeah. hour here. We're going to talk to people here and we're going to hear what people talk about. And, and yeah, and, and some of that, and some, there are some people we probably pretty much only see there. So it yeah. has become yeah. a little bit of a community. And I think that's the kind of thing that I'm thinking a lot about is like, okay, so... Are there, I think I'm much more interested in like community spaces. I think the sacred spaces thing I haven't totally figured out yeah. yet. It's the, it's the community that's really at the heart of it for you. It is, it is a community of, of shared values that you miss. Yes. Are you still searching? Um, yes. Yeah. Well. Oh. Unclear. I don't think I'm being unreasonable, but I'm getting close to the the church that I want to go to, I think could exist, but maybe doesn't currently. And rather than investing in a church that I think, I don't want to get up again in 10 years and uh, we invested in the wrong church. I, mm-hmm. How did I forget to ask what their gay rights views were before I joined? You know, um, you know, I would rather not do that. And I think I might try to figure out some more time thinking about how do we build a community of people with shared values? What are the ways to do that? How, what are the ways to educate Charlotte about those values? And what are the ways to make sure that we're living to those values ourselves? And so think about those three questions, answer them, and be a little, and be maybe open to the idea that maybe those answers are not gonna come through a place open from 10 to 12 on Sunday. Perry, it was so great to talk with you. Thank you for spending so much time doing it and having this conversation. I really appreciate it. Uh, Thanks, Rachel. Appreciate it. You can hear more of Rachel Martin's Enlighten Me series right here, same time next week. And you can find past conversations on npr.org.